0: It's now time for the program called You Mentor. The purpose of this program is to utilise the academics, careers, and skills of some of the movers and shakers in our community to help to further the careers of our young and and to inspire our young people. And now, without further ado, let's welcome your host, Brother Yahya.
1: Salaam alaikum, Brother David. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, I can. Walekum salam, Brother.
1: Okay, so welcome to all the listeners live on radio, on our SoundCloud recording, or later on iTunes. We're really happy to have you. We have two really talented professionals on today's call, albeit in very, very different fields. So, in the spirit of the World Cup, uh, we will be splitting the show into two halves today. In the first half, we will talk with an eighteen-year real estate investor mogul from Chicago, Brother Abbas Kanji. And then in the second half, we will explore the world of speech pathology with a professional speech pathologist extraordinaire, joining us all the way from Dallas, Texas, Sister Kazima Wajahat. We will, inshallah, hear their stories, and I've heard a bit of it before, so they are extremely interesting, it's an exciting show, and they're really well established in their careers, so we hope you will enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get started. Brother Abbas, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the program. (inaudible)
2: Waalaikumsalam. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Okay. So, when one hears the word real estate investments, right, you might think of a traditional buying a condo and renting it out and making some profit. However, there must be other types of real estate investments out there. So, could you take some time and talk a bit more about the real estate investment industry and what else is there beyond the regular condo rental?
2: Absolutely. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Most folks that I run into that are not in the business, when they think about real estate, they think about residential real estate because that's what they touch and live in every single day. So people think about buying and selling their homes, buying a, a property, fixing it up, flipping it, um, buying a condo, renting it out, getting the the income. But there's a whole other world of institutional real estate, which people see every day, but probably don't think about investing in. So, for example, office buildings uh, in the downtown areas, shopping centers where you go to do uh, your grocery shopping or your shopping malls or or your Costco or your Target is located. That's also part of real estate. The restaurants you go to, the movie theaters that you go to, um, the apartments you live in. Some people pay rent every month instead of Owning their own home. Well, there's a landlord who owns that apartment building. That person is a that landlord is a real estate investor. And then you have different types of more specialty type of real estate. For example, hotels. Hotels is an asset class of real estate. It functions more of like an operating business, but it's considered real estate. Student housing, you'll see different types of um Student-only accommodations near universities, that's a different type of real estate. A new one is self-storage. It's a new class of real estate, but growing very fast, where folks are growing out of their homes, or they're moving into small apartments, they need a storage space, so they rent one uh, for a small amount every month. You have industrial properties in this age of Amazon.com, where so much is being shipped over. Um, you know, through UPS or FedEx or through the postal service, you have uh, the need for industrial warehouses to store all of these products. So really it, it can go on and on, but the <laughs> the the space of real estate is huge and you're literally seeing it and touching it every single day without probably even realizing it.
1: Well, wow. So I guess you did list quite a bit. <laughs> um, so within that huge wide range of possibilities, Where do you fit in with your investments um, as well as like, is it specific areas within that or is it across the board? Um, And then also talk about what exactly you do as part of and as being an investor.
2: Absolutely. So it's hard to be good at everything. And I mean, some people are, but maybe I (laughs) like you, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I do focus on a a certain amount of uh, select areas, which I feel I have a decent amount of expertise in that I could go to an investor and say, hey, I'm buying this type of property. I have this much experience in that field, so you should trust me with your hard-earned dollars. And those areas are multifamily, which is basically apartments. And the second is commercial, uh, specifically focused on retail. Uh, I have done some hotels, some office buildings in the past, but really shopping centers and apartment buildings are where I've had a tremendous amount of experience. And then within shopping centers, I've done most of my work in shopping malls. Um, And a shopping mall is where you have two or three big anchors, let's say a JCPenney or a Sears, uh, Macy's, Nordstrom, and then you have a lot of interior shop space as well with some smaller shops like the the foot lockers of the world gap old navy uh maybe a food court so that's what we consider a shopping mall versus a, a grocery anchored shopping center which is where you probably go buy your grocery store there's a huge grocery store and then on either side of it you'll see some small shops maybe a, a barber shop a nail salon um it could be a gnc um so it could be really anything but um, those are the different types of shopping centers that I've focused on in addition to the uh, apartment buildings which we purchased.
1: Right. So I guess how does that conversation even begin? Like you, had, um, you work for Orrington Capital, correct? hmm So I guess are there like some really rich people that come and just contact you guys, say we have a lot of money. What do you suggest? Um, so how does that entire process work in terms of you sure. getting out there? the whole complete picture.
2: Yeah. So th- that, that that's a little bit more complicated um, okay. and, and it's not so easy all the time. Mm-hmm. What, what I would take a step back and say that there are different types of companies that acquire real estate. So when you're driving around the city that you live in and you see a big shopping center, a shopping mall, or a grocery anchored shopping center, or a large apartment complex, you know, apartment complex with 100 units and a community swimming pool and fitness area and things like that. Those properties are probably owned by um, maybe a company that is publicly traded. So you could go onto the stock exchange and invest in that company. And then that company goes out and buys these large swaths of real estate. It could be owned by a pension fund. So these are different retirement funds that um, different companies manage. It could be a high net worth individual, folks that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars have, you know, made their wealth in, in buying this type of real estate. It could be a partnership where there are maybe 20 or 30 different investors that pool their funds together, and then they go out and purchase a shopping center or apartment complex. So the different structures of ownership within the real estate space are quite diverse. Um, in fact, nowadays, you'll even have foreign companies, uh, European, Canadian, I'm talking about the U.S. market, so European, Canadian, Chinese investors, they'll come in and uh, they'll say, well, gee, we think it's a good idea to diversify and own some United States real estate. So there's many different forms of of ownership. Specifically, when you look at what I've had experience doing in my career, I've kind of jumped across a, a, a few different platforms, raising money, working for a company that raised money from different pension funds. So we would have, for example, the Los Angeles County Policeman, uh, they have a pension fund and Mm -hmm. that pension fund invests in real estate. So they would give a certain amount of their pension fund to our company and we would invest it for them. I've worked for very high net worth family offices where you have a family that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and they want to allocate some of their wealth to acquiring real estate. And so we would use their money and hopefully make a smart decision and invest it into real estate. Um, in other instances, I've been in, in situations where um, I'm just there as an advisory role, where someone is looking to acquire a building, and they say, hey, Abbas, you've done this before. Can you give us some advice? Um, so in terms of my role, it's really been varied, and um, it, it evolved over you know the past uh, what, 10, 15 years.
1: Yeah. Okay. Wow. So there's a, if there's a lot of different possibilities of work to do within that specific investment sector.
2: Absolutely, so I, absolutely. Yeah. And then even within that sector, mm-hmm. it's not only acquiring the property. That's just right. one <laughs> step of it. Um, so let's say you own a shopping center, and um, there's a, a one of the tenants leaves. Well, you have to release that space. Well, there's, right. there's leasing brokers. Um, or even the step before that, how do you find out that shopping center is for sale? There are brokers that there are brokers that sell homes. Well, there are brokers that sell these massive shopping centers or shopping malls or apartment communities, and right. you can get it. Th- that's one way people can get a huge amount of exposure into real estate just by being a broker, because you'll literally see hundreds of deals. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, as an investor, I work on my handful of deals, and that's what I know. That's what I know really well. Uh, brokers, they see tons of deals because they're selling multiple deals, um, at any given time. Um, Mm. and then, you know, so you can be a leasing person. You could be the person who arranges financing. Sometimes when you buy a property, you can't pay all cash. You have to go get a loan. Well, you could be a lender. Um, so there's, there's all sorts. And then there's even within the other professional services, there are attorneys who just focus on real estate law. So when I buy a property, There's a contract, It's a purchase and sale contract. Well, who negotiates that? Well, we hire lawyers who specialize in real estate law to do that. Uh, Where you're signing a lease with The Gap, right? The Gap is going to be in your shopping mall. You're signing a lease with them. You're going to have a real estate attorney to help advise you on that. So you really, the real estate space is so huge. Um, You can really get involved in in, uh, a variety of different ways, not only on the acquisition but within the acquisition, so many different areas um, of different types of companies that acquire. And then beyond that, whether it's a lender or a broker or an architect or a property manager, um, you know, who's the person that collects the rents every month? Who are the accountants that make sure all the books are in order? It, it, it's really a huge uh, space.
1: Right. So I guess in terms of... Uh Correct me if I'm wrong, because um, it's a lot of money. But you've participated in a total of 1.4 billion dollars worth of transactions as an That's investor in this industry.
2: That's correct? That's correct. That that is correct. Yeah, and it, <laughs> okay. it is a it is a lot of money. But you know, I've been doing it for a long time, and, and right. it adds and it adds up. And so, um, you know, there when you start off in your career, and maybe you're doing if you're doing especially if you're doing it on your own, maybe you're buying you know a small property. It's Mm -hmm. worth, you know, a couple million dollars and you have a few investors and you do it. But once you start managing money for larger institutions or family offices, the deal size goes up very quickly. Where Mm -hmm. if you're a pension fund managing billions of dollars of, you know, there's of pension fund money, it doesn't make sense for them to buy a property worth $1 million. it's, It's inefficient. So they'll say, okay, we need to go buy properties the average property size should be at least $50 million. Wow. Okay. So you do 20 of those and you're up to a billion dollars. Right. Um, so there's, um, and, and what's interesting is sometimes the larger properties are a lot easier to acquire and manage than some of the smaller ones because the larger properties, you know, they are managed very well generally. Um, they have, they've hired the right staff to do it. People who are experts in their field are running the books. They're running the property. Everything is above board. Um, if you want to go buy, you know, a, a small little strip shopping center with three tenants in it, and it's owned by someone who's maybe not as sophisticated when you're purchasing that it may be a lot more brain damage and say oh my god what has this guy been doing i don't understand any of his books His leases are <laughs> out of you know the, there are no leases you know that's he, like my
1: like, personal accounting that's, that's what yeah exactly
2: yeah i remember there's this one apartment property that i bought where um he he said uh, abbas the the revenues are, I'm just making up a number, $100,000 a year. I said, okay, perfect. Show me show me the bank statements that back that up. And I'm looking at his bank statements, and I'm saying, you know, you said it's $100,000 a year. I'm adding up all your deposits, and it's only $75,000. Where the rest of the money go? He said, oh, you know, I some of my tenants, they just pay me cash. I put it in my pocket, and a lot of that revenue comes in, like um, – quarters and the laundry machine and I, you know, I just spend that on my own and <laughs> there was no way to verify what this guy was doing. Um, so you, you'll see all sorts in the real estate uh, marketplace.
1: Okay. Um, uh, so I guess you've, you briefly touched upon like all these different types of, um, investment opportunities or situations you've been in. What would you say the most interesting real estate transaction you completed was? And maybe as part of that discussion, maybe it, like it's really interesting how you come up with your recommendation. So if mm-hmm. you could talk a bit about the sort of analysis that takes place sure. as a real estate investor and in, in, a, in light of a specific example.
2: Absolutely. Um, so usually properties that have a lot of different moving parts are the mm-hmm. most challenging, but they also have the most opportunity f- for success. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a project that we're working on right now Um, it's a mixed use community by mixed use. I mean, it is an office building on top of shops. And then there's another building with apartments on top of shops. And then there's a movie theater and a bowling alley, and there's a target and there's, um, so all different Mm. uses are there. You have entertainment, people live there, people go to work there. It's this massive, cool property. Mm. And, um, one of the major tenants there was a Macy's department store. And Macy's um, went bankrupt and, and closed, or not entirely bankrupt, but they closed a lot of their stores, hundreds of them across the country. Mm-hmm. And one of them was in this location. And we had um, this big empty box in the middle of our big complex here. And people were wondering, what are you going to do with it? Um, as you, if, you, if you just listen to the news and you think about what's happening with, with retailers, There's not a lot of them, and a lot of them were going out of business. So we couldn't find a retailer to go into this space. Mm. And so we talked to the city. We said, what is really something that you guys need? And then we looked at our own portfolio, what is working really well? And the city told us, and they said, we really need a hotel. We have a great convention center, and there's not enough hotel rooms um, to bring in the big events to our convention center." He said, okay, well, that, that's a good idea. And then we knew that the apartments, the rental apartments that are already in this development are always 100% full. We're turning people away. So we said, well, gee, why don't we tear down this Macy's and build a hotel on one side of it and we'll build uh, apartments on the other side? Well, as an idea, that's great. But before <laughs> you invest millions of dollars into doing this, like you, like you were inferring, you need to do a lot of analysis because mm. you don't make these decisions just based on a whim. And so just to break it down very simply, you have to look at supply and demand. You have to say, all right, is there a demand for hotel rooms? And is there enough supply of hotel rooms? And, and here's another space in real estate you can get, get into. You can hire folks that do market research for you. And what they do is they scour the market and they'll literally count how many hotel rooms are in this market? And how many people are coming to stay in those hotel rooms? And what is the occupancy rate? And what has the, how has the occupancy rate changed over the past five years? And what is the average room cost per night in this area? And how has that changed over the past five years? And there's just tons and tons of data. Then they look at, well, has employment grown in this area? Are there more businesses opening? Is there more business travel? There's just tons and tons of data. So you can hire someone to do a market research report for you, which is what we did. And Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, so we got that analysis going. That report verified to us that, yes, there is a demand for it. Then Mm -hmm. we said, okay, well, how much is this going to cost? So I have no idea what it costs (laughs) to build a hotel. And um, so we hired a couple of general contractors and architects. And we said, why don't you sketch out, you know, a 120-room hotel and, uh, what would it cost? And they gave us some rough numbers and right. you always start with rough numbers just to test the idea to make sure it works. So we know that mm-hmm. there's demand. We know that it's going to cost about this much and we know about how much we can rent those rooms for every night. Okay, perfect. Now, what type of hotel would we want to have? it? Will it be a Marriott? Will it be a Hilton? Will it be a <laughs> Hyatt? Will it be a Holiday Inn? Oh my God, there's so many things to do. So then you go out and you talk to all of these different brands. And you ask them, here's my market report study. It says that there's a demand for hotels. And the folks from Holiday Inn may say, well, gee, we're already in the area. We don't want to be your right, uh, right. flag here. But then the folks from Marriott will say, actually, this is a market we've been looking to get into. We'll do it. We'll put in a Hampton in here, whatever it is that they want to put in. Right. And so that's another part of the equation. Then you're saying, All right, well, now I got a flag, uh, a hotel flag to be in my hotel. I know how much it's going to cost to build. Um, Well, now I need money to actually build it. (laughs) So you go to the the banks and you say, "Uh, Mr. Lunder, I really want to build a hotel. It's going to be a Marriott. It's going to cost this much to build. Here's my market study. I've done all my homework. Please, please, please give me a loan. And they'll say, Well, you know, here are all our terms and conditions. And so it's really a lot of work. And so when you see, Uh, You know, a hotel being built uh, in your neighborhood, I think you'll be able to appreciate a bit more how much work actually goes into it. And then once the construction starts, you have to hire the designers and, you know, the the room layouts and what, you know, where everything is going to be. And it's really immense amount of detail. Will this hotel have a, a pool? Will it be a rooftop pool? Will it be a ground floor pool? Will it have breakfast? Will it be free breakfast? Where's the kitchen going to be? Where's the back of the office going to be? Where are they going to clean all the towels? All of that stuff, you know, details need to be hashed out. Um, wow. So it it, it, it it can be cumbersome. Yeah. But that's all part of the process and the details that um, as an investor mm. and as an owner, you're not necessarily doing a lot of the analysis in right. the sense that, okay, I'm going to figure out where the, the breakfast room should be, or I'm going to figure out <laughs> how many rooms are in the market. But you need to know all of that stuff and hire the right people to advise you so you can make right. the right decision. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, the, the guy selling the market research report, he just sells you the data, and then he's done. Whether the hotel gets <laughs> built or not, or whether it's successful yeah. or not, he got paid. You paid him for his report. It's yeah. up to you to make sure the project is successful. The general contractor, he's just gonna build it for you and gonna walk away and collect his fee. Whether that project's successful or not, right. it really depends on how well you run it. And mm-hmm. then some of the general contractors you gotta shop around. You know, someone will say it costs five million to build the hotel. Someone will say it costs seven million. million. <laughs> well, which one is right? I don't know. And you gotta dig wow. into the detail and figure it out. So it it's it, it's a process. But through that process, you're always refining your investment thesis. The original investment thesis was, can you build a hotel here? Is there enough demand for it? And through that, you're always refining it. And uh, eventually, the hotel gets built, if it all makes sense. If all the stars align.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, probably a question that's on everyone, he- on, in everyone's head right now is, if, for example, a Myriad gets built, do they sneak you some points? Uh, (laughs) part of the point system (laughs) i'm kidding
2: uh well well there it's probably i don't know if it's known or not known but yeah owners (laughs) owners of hotels get some pretty nice perks Um, and and look i i don't own one personally um you know they're (laughs) investors and folks that i work for and with Mm -hmm. they they own them but yeah if you own a hotel you get some pretty nice perks You always get an upgrade.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Presidential suite with a boss Kanji. Um, Okay, so I guess let's shift gears. Um, So a little bit more about you you explained exactly what you do, how you do it, you're being the decision maker. And like I'm inspired. (laughs) I wish I could go back in time and change the way I might have chosen my profession. So if there was um, a high school student right now that wants to get to do what you do what sort of path should they take because your path was you took a you you went to northwestern did a degree in economics then you went into management consulting and then you went to one of the top schools for your mba at harvard so is that the path that someone should take um, should is there other paths that they could take if if it's uh, you know what i mean so sure
2: sure where, so it, what sort it, of it, path it, should you take yeah, it, and it depends, right? So when I was in high school, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I think a lot of people are pre-med in our community, and it wasn't really on my mind. But when I got to university, I, I majored in economics and because I was, frankly, just a little bit more interested in it. And then when I was finishing university, honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Do I still want to try go to med school? Do I want to work in the business field? I really didn't know. And management consulting is a great place to buy time, um, or or I guess get paid to have some more time to figure things out. Uh, When I was an undergrad, I wanted to get a graduate degree at some point. I wasn't sure when. And management consulting afforded me the opportunity to get some work experience, learn a little bit more about different types of businesses, and get that work experience, which a lot of business schools require before you go into it. So... If, if you're not sure what you want to do, you know, that's a, actually a pretty good path to take. Do, do a liberal arts degree, um, but something that is functional as well so you can get a job coming out of school. Mm-hmm. And then go into some, some sphere, sphere like, like if you're into business, you know, management consulting is a great space where you can see a lot of businesses. And you know, just right. for the audience, a management consultant, what they do is they advise businesses. It doesn't matter what industry they're in. But there are businesses that need advice. So, for example, you're a healthcare company. Should we launch a new product to sell um, these new type of disposable latex gloves in our hospitals? In hospitals, right. Well, they'll hire a management consultant to help them figure that out. And you may work on that project for six months. And then six months later, you'll have a different client. This client is in the oil and gas space. And they're wondering, um, how do we... Um, how do we adjust our business to account for the different change in regulations regarding oil exploration? And they'll hire a consultant to do that. Right. And so what you are as a management consultant, you're, you're a rented brain. They're hiring you for your brain to figure things out. And you work as a team and your hours are very long and you get paid very well. Um, I did that for three and a half years. And I said, gee, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. I need to do something else let's go to business school. And in business school, I'll figure out what I want to do. And when I was in business school, um, I had time to think about it. And I was you know, attracted to real estate. I thought it was something very stable. People can generate uh, decent wealth in that sphere. Um, and it's, it's not rocket science. So you know, I should be able to figure it out. And right. I did an internship with a real estate company, after business school is, is a two-year program, you take an internship between your first and second year. So my internship was with a real estate company. I enjoyed it. And then after business school, I, I went full force into real estate and, you know, the rest is history. Right. If you're in high school, sorry, go back to original question and you for sure. Yes. I want to go into real estate. You definitely don't take the path that I went on because you were, <laughs> you're wasting a lot of time. Um, there are people, who, uh, there are some great schools out there that have, real estate programs, um, in undergraduate, and you can go and you can enroll yourself in there and learn a ton. And during your internships, during, uh, you know, after your, uh, between the, during your summer breaks, you can get some nice work experience and really see if there's something you want to do. and then you can get into real estate. And like we started off earlier in the, in the interview, there's so many areas of real estate to go into. Uh, you know, you can be like I am on the investor side, you can be a lender, you could be an appraiser, you know, so you're really good at math. You can do, you know, all you do is just run these research reports and say, I want to forecast the demand for class A apartments in New York, right? They're statisticians that that's what they do. Um, so there's all sorts you can do, but I would say if you're focused on real estate, go to an undergraduate program that has a great real estate program. Um, and do you really need to get a graduate degree? No, you don't. Um, un- unless you want to do, uh, if you want to do real estate law or something like that, um, yeah, then you should go become a lawyer. But as far as do you need an MBA to do what I do? Absolutely not. It's right. really, you learn everything on the job.
1: Perfect. So with the last question, um, before we take a break and I guess, in terms of the skills, you were alluding to it in your question about decision making, getting the right people around. So as a high school student, what skills, if I know, if I look at myself and I'm like, actually, I like math, um, I I do like to construct, um, like what sort of skills are critical to be successful in this field?
2: Sure. And, and you mentioned math right now. I think a comfort with math is really important um, because... Whether you're, like we're talking about that that example of a hotel, you should be comfortable analyzing data and looking at, um, you know, being able to pull out trends, uh, or even if you have a small shopping center, you want to be able to quickly calculate what what is the rent should be. I need to figure out what my operating expenses are to make sure I'm not coming out with a a loss on this property. So math is very important. I say if you have a good comfort with numbers, it doesn't need to be, you know, calculus, but... You know, yeah. addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, those should be, you know, something you feel very, very good with and, and enjoy doing. Uh, the second thing who I've noticed is really successful in real estate. They all have very good critical thinking. Um, mm. They're able to uh, figure out solutions to roadblocks. So back to this example of a hotel. Uh, you know, we want to build a hotel. We think that the demand is there. Uh, but the construction, the, the numbers aren't working out. So you should be able to look at this and say, "Well, why aren't the numbers working out?" And be able to figure out a way to do this. Oh, well, the numbers aren't working out because Marriott—they're forcing me to have a pool on the roof. And if I put a rooftop yeah. pool, it's going to cost me half a million dollars extra if I put it in the ground. So I right. got to—I figure that out. I have to make a good argument, go back to Marriott, and say, "Hey, can we do this hotel but without the rooftop pool?" Perfect. And that leads into the last thing, which I think is important in, every, in anything, and I think will transition really well into what Sister Kazma going to talk about, is that you need to be able to articulate and convey what you're trying to accomplish in a very convincing manner. I mm-hmm. talk to all sorts of people on any given day. I talk to my tenants. I talk to lawyers. I talk to architects. I talk to investors, um, and all of them have a different background, a different aptitude, Um, You can't speak to a sophisticated lender the same way you talk to um, an individual who just is running their business at your shopping center. And you need to be able to converse with all those different types of people in a way that they can appreciate what you're saying in a respectful way um, so that you can convince them uh, of what you're trying to accomplish. And so having good communication skills is, is really important, not only in real estate, but I would imagine in almost every field.
1: Perfect. Well, wow. so I guess thank you for your time. Thank you for joining the show. It's really interesting to hear your journey. Like there's no crystal ball at high sc- in high school <laughs> that anyone can just look at and t- 5, 10, 15 years from now I will be here. It seems like you read the trends, you figured it out along the way, picked up skills and somehow you just gravitate to the area that in- that that is su- is right for you. And I think we'll see that as well in our next listener um, with Sister Kazuma. So Thank you very much for being on, Brother Abbas, and uh, we'll we'll go. We won't continue with the break. We'll just go straight to Sister Kazuma, if That's okay with you, Brother Dawood. Okay. So thank you very much again, Brother Abbas.
2: Thank you very much.
1: All right. So Sister Kazuma, are you there? I am. Assalamu alaikum. I can Sam um, Okay. So for the listeners, I uh, just wanted to give a bit of a, I guess a a preview of the mm-hmm. exciting speaker we have on the call right now. Um so the second caller today uh is a very active person as you will see. Uh she's a mother of two. She has some amazing side projects that you'll get to know um all while maintaining her speech pathologist profession. She's really an inspiration and hopefully you'll you'll see the same thing after hearing her story. So with that, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so before we jump into everything, for the listeners like myself, um, who aren't sure what speech pathology is, could you enlighten us?
3: Um, yeah, so a speech pathologist is um, a person that works with communication disorders, um, and a little more about communication disorders, um, it's an impairment in um And sending or receiving um, a verbal or nonverbal message Mm -hmm. Um, and speech pathologists also deal with so they so the the practice that they do they're they're dealing with, um, you know, uh, from articulation disorders, voice disorders, um, cognitive um, language um, um, and even um, feeding disorders, swallowing disorders as well. So there's there's a lot that we can do within the scope of practice.
1: Okay. So it, the way you just described it, it sounds really rewarding. Um, so you must have helped, like, countless of children um, reach feats that maybe their parents didn't imagine they could reach, especially when they first get diagnosed with the disorder. And you must have, like, brought tears of joy to their faces. Um, so you must have many stories like that. So would you mind sharing maybe one or two um, of those kind of stories that are most memorable to yourself?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um... I think one of my most favorite memories is was, was with this um, little two-and-a-half-year-old that I worked with. Um, he was super cute, and um, he wasn't able to say—like, uh, he had a lot to say, but no one was understanding him, um, and, you know, he wasn't even able to say, like, mama to his mom. It was like, you know, it was really difficult, and yeah. it's something that we take for granted as um, human beings that are able to do that. Like, we don't realize— you know, how much of a difference, not being able to communicate like basic wants and needs could be in someone's life. Mm. Um, and so he, um, you know, he came in, he was actually referred from somebody else who thought it was just an articulation disorder. Um, I think he was an ECI in early childhood, um, intervention. And so, um, you know, they just thought it was an articulation disorder. So we, so we went with that. We started um, treating, you know, we, we, um, did goals and, um, based on the, based on the recommendations that other speech pathologists had given. Um, right. And, you know, after a while I realized that, you know, this isn't an articulation disorder because, you know, he was showing um, with an articulation disorder, you've got consistent errors with the particular sound um, throughout their speech. Um, and, right. and this child was, he was not able to say most of his sounds. Um, like he just didn't have the ability and he would leave off like the initial consonant. So everything would be you know, without that, you know, and I, I think I had mentioned it to you earlier. He, um, he loved, um, Disney cars, um, yeah. and he would, he would always come in with this bag of like cars from Disney cars. And he he's, used, he's used to tell me about them. And sadly, I've actually never seen the movie. Um, so I had no idea except lightning McQueen. Like I had no idea who he <laughs> was talking about. And, um, you know, later on down the road when he, you know, we, you know, I was like, this is not an articulation disorder. Um, you know, we did, I did an evaluation and, um, you know, he ended up having apraxia, childhood okay. apraxia of speech, um, which is a motor speech disorder. Um, so, you know, once he was able to diagnose, we, um, we changed our, th- our therapy and our strategies, um, according to what his diagnosis was. Um, and, you know, within a couple of months, he was like, like Making such fast progress that his mom was even just so like, you know, in tears because, you know, it's just so amazing for just to hear your child being able to express themselves to you. And and he used to get really frustrated, too, when no one understood him because he in his mind, he knew what he was talking about, but no one else understood him. Um, but, but after that, you know, I was, he would describe like the, he told me the names of the, the Disney cars and, um, and I finally understood like, you know, what he was talking about. So, you know, just things like that are, you know, things that really hit me. And, and, and the mom, for example, like when I had to actually leave because I was pregnant and I went on maternity leave, she was like, it was really hard for her to let go because she, she, you know, we, we build a relationship with our families it's not just with the child. Mm. You're building a relationship with the the fam, the mom, the you know maybe even the siblings. Um, like you're part of their family. They talk about you at home, like um, because you're making such a big difference in their lives. So
1: right, yeah, yeah no, that yeah. See, like I'm pretty <laughs> sure, like it makes you like it's really really rewarding. Um, yeah. So I guess um, in terms of this career, speech pathology and the impact you're making in ter- with mm-hmm. kids is, I guess, did you always know that that was going to be what you wanted to do? Um, what, like basically, did did a future you come and plant a seed in your head, like Inception, and one day you woke up with that idea? <laughs> I love no. that movie, so I had to use that reference. But, I mean, <laughs> or like, how did you come come into this profession? Like we heard in Brother Abbas's case, it was kind of like it, he came into it um but it yeah. wasn't like purely planned so i was just wondering tell talk to us a bit about that
3: yeah so when um brother vas is speaking he did say um like early on he wanted to be a doctor and that was me actually when i had first <laughs> um when i was a lot younger cuz my mom is a doctor so obviously you just have to you know that's what you you want to be um but you know obviously as i got older i'm like yeah this is not for me um and when i actually started college um Uh, or university when I actually started university I went um, into neuroscience that was my major Um, and so I you know and and I still find it very interesting Um, but after a while I actually changed to psychology because I you know that was one of my interests as well Um, and um, I did take a lot of of classes in psychology. Then my, my aunt actually, who's, who's been a nurse, um, for, she's been a practicing nurse for over 35 years. She was like, you know, you, you need to look into, you know, speech path. And I was like, what is that? Because at that time it was fairly new. Um, and you know, there wasn't much hype about it. And um, so I was like, okay, let me try. And so, um, this UTD, the school I went to has one of the best brain behavioral sciences in um, the Dallas area. Um, Actually in Texas, but, um, yeah. so I was like, okay, let's, let me try to take a class and I can use it as an elective credit. If I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't. Um, and I did, and, and I fell in love. Like I right. loved everything about it. I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, and so, and I still love psychology as well. So I ended up, um, uh, doing my minor in psychology. Um, right. and then I finished up my bachelor's in speech language pathology and audiology. Wow. Um, Yeah.
1: Okay, so I guess just continuing on that. So you got your bachelor's um, yeah. in that speech pathology, but that mm-hmm. doesn't qualify you to be a speech pathologist, right? You have to do some additional schooling. So talk about what the requirements are to be a professional speech pathologist like yourself.
3: Right. Okay. So if you, um, if you finish up your bachelor's and, Mm -hmm. um, I believe there's like some number of clock hours you have to do, um, like clinicals after you do that, you can actually be a speech pathologist assistant, but you're not a full blown speech pathologist yet. Um, to be a speech pathologist, you would have to do that two and a half years of grad school. Um, and within, um, the program, they usually, um, require you to have 400, um, clock hours of clinical. Um, right. and so we're, you know, we're working with different, we're working in different settings with different diagnosis so that we get that hands-on, um, experience as well. Um, so, you know, the, the practical side of it. Um, and so after you do that, after you finish your or I'm sorry, when you finish your master's, um, you have to do a nine month um, like an internship, it's a fellowship, basically. Okay. Um, so you do your clinical fellowship, and um, after that, you're full-blown certified, um, okay. and you'll have um, a bunch of letters after your name. So it'll, yeah, usually a, it's SLP, CCC. Um, so you're a certified um, speech-language pathologist.
1: Okay, so update all those email signatures, eh?
3: Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I did when I graduated. <laughs>
1: And update your LinkedIn. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: okay. So I guess what's interesting. I uh, just wanted to dig into one sort of idea here. So you 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 took that one course, right, uh, in speech pathology in that area, and then that made you get hooked on it, change profession, change degrees, and then eventually lead you to the current profession you're in right now. Mm-hmm. So. But if you hadn't picked neuroscience, for example, or you didn't have that interest in science or being a doctor, you might have not necessarily come across that kind of, um, I, I guess, that, that field per se, right? So in mm-hmm. terms of what sort of courses or skills should me, if I was a high school student, be looking for to know that this sort of profession is right for me?
3: Um, so we always joke that speech pathologists are always very type a and they're perfectionists. <laughs> so okay. um yeah so you have to like really um you have to be comfortable with actually like being out um outgoing and with people because you're gonna i mean you're you're working with the client you're working with their family um you're educating them like um Right. And, you know, everything has to be like to buy the book, like you have to make sure that your document documentation is in order you're, and you're, um, cause there's also, you know, the paperwork that's involved, you know, your, your evaluations are up to par. Um, so those are all definitely things that you would, um, need as if you're entering into the field, um, to be successful. Um, mm-hmm. you would probably also want, um, a good understanding of things like grammar and, and language, um, Because, you know, a lot, a bulk of that is being able to understand, you know, even like children that were working with, um, that have language disorders, you have to be able to understand like which parts of language they're having trouble with, you know, a a child might be having trouble with pronouns, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have to have good understanding of that as well. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'm, you would really just have to be a really outgoing person. Like I, I don't see, I don't see, um, you know, introverts actually being as successful. I'm sure there are some out there, but you like right. really have to be comfortable with um, being out there with people face-to-face.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I've heard that same, like a lot of people come to me uh, and people I know, mm-hmm. they say that those skills, like what you just described are what mm-hmm. they have, What? but what, mm-hmm. what sort of jobs could I get out of that? And um, it's pretty refreshing and encouraging that something mm-hmm. so rewarding like what you do It kind of fits perfectly into that mold. So um, that's pretty exciting. Uh, Speaking of exciting, um, (laughs) let alone you have this amazing profession, um, you also have decided to make a further impact and write a book, right? Mikhail and Malaika, Uh uh, The Quest for Love. So what inspired you to do this? What is the book about? How does it relate to what you do? So just talk to us a bit about that part of your journey.
3: Mm-hmm. So um right about I think 2 years ago um I was getting close to the 30 mark. I'm not 30 yet, but I was getting close. <laughs> um and so I was like, you know, I I've, I've done, you know, I've done all this. It's great. I love being a speech pathologist. I love what I do, but I I felt like I was at a dead end and I wanted to do more. Um mm-hmm. I was like, I want to make my mark. I want to make a difference. Um and and of course, my passion has always been children, so it had to be with children. So I was like, I need to go out and do more. Um, so, um, and I was like, I'm almost, I'm almost 30. Like I need to, I want to, you know, do all this before I turn 30. That's
1: the unofficial <laughs> and, and retirement age. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, of course, like, you know, people yeah, after 30 do great course, things. Nothing against course. those people that are over 30. Old but, people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, no, but, um, but no, um, I want, you know, there's a lot that I wanted to do Um and so I was like, let's, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do was write a book, um, right. in, um, an Islamic book in particular, because when we grew up, uh, we didn't have really good Islamic books. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the ones we had were really poorly written or the illustrations were just awful. And, and of course, you know, that's, that's like gonna have an adverse effect on our um, love for Islam. I mean, not that it changed my love for Islam, oh, but that interest okay. that we took. So if I wanted to pick up a book the first book I would pick up would be one, you know, that's mainstream, like from the library rather than pick up an Islamic book. Um, and so I wanted a book that would be like, and especially by this time I, my son was born, um, actually, my daughter was born as well. So I wanted something that they would want to pick up over like another mainstream book. Um, so I, you know, I, I, can't, I know I was like, let's just go for it. Let's try. And so I, I wrote a book. Um, I wrote, you know, I wrote it and then I looked for an illustrator and, and I, and then it just kind of happened. Like once I just kind of, I was in that mindset that this is something I was going to do. Um, we made it work and then I, um, came out and we launched the book last November.
1: Well, okay. Well, yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: um, so I guess, uh, if, you, if that wasn't enough, <laughs> you didn't stop there. You also have an Instagram project channel. Basically, uh-huh. for the love of learning, right? So, uh-huh. can you tell us a bit about that and how that also relates to? Is like kind of a spin-off of your speech pathology.
3: Yeah. So, um, so my interests um, they they lie, you know, obviously with um, normal language development and um, yeah. and children acquiring language, but also um, the psychology of children um, and and how you know what what approaches we should, should, we should take towards our children when we're raising them or even education approaches. Cause there's so many different education approaches out there. Um, right. um, but there's not much, um, there's not many people that talk about what is best um, in relation to a child's normal psychology. Cause, um, you know, the the education system and, and the public schools in here in the United States, um, is very traditional um, cookie cutter approach. And clearly nice. it hasn't been working. You know, there's a lot more out there that we need to um, look into. And so I do a lot of research on different education models and um, and also um, and, and using that with the things that I know from my experience and what I've um, studied. Um, uh, that's kind of what I do with um, the For the Love of Learning series that I have. Um, so, so far, I mean, I just started like, uh, I believe, a month ago or okay. two months ago. Yeah, um, I've watched a few of
1: those videos.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, I talk um, a lot about, you know, children acquiring language, what's normal, what's not normal, because another thing that um, our Islamic community, it's, it's hard for moms to step up and say, you know, I feel like my children, might ha- my child might have a problem, um, and being able to um, seek help for it. So this is a way for them to, you know, um, know what, you know, know what to look for in their child, what is supposed to be expected, what's not supposed to be expected. And, um, and then if they do have any questions, I use that platform to do consults and coaching. Um, so I have a lot of moms that will, you know, email me or um, message me later and be like, you know, this really helped. Um, my child is doing this and this, do you think that is normal? Do you think it's not? What should I be doing with my child? So I offer them strategies. Um, so it's been, it's been really rewarding because, um, you know, I do love what I do, but it gives me a little more, um, yeah. it puts me a little more out there and, and, and gives me the ability to help other, other moms that are going through something.
1: Okay, so we have, I think, mm-hmm. a couple minutes or, or mm-hmm. less. So um, in the next two minutes, we'll try to make it like 30, yeah. seconds, 30 second answers. Um, mm-hmm. So what's really interesting about your story also is that you're, you, you're, being a mother is your priority, your top mm-hmm. priority. But you still right. wanted to maintain your profession. So with this profession, mm-hmm. um, you've been able to keep it part-time as a teleprovider, right? So right. you've been able to get the best of both worlds. So mm-hmm. maybe talk quickly about that. And is that a, also a reason that you picked this profession? Or did it just happen you forced your way into it kind of thing?
3: Yeah, so there's... Um... There's a lot of settings that you can go into if you become a speech pathologist, anywhere from inpatient at the hospital, outpatient, private practice, schools. Um, so I, after my son was born, I took two years off because I wanted to you know, concentrate on him. Um, but then right around the time I was expecting my second, um, I was like, you know, I really want to get back in because if I, if I don't use it, I'll lose it. Right. Um, so I, I, um, I looked um, for some opportunities. And at that time, telepractice was fairly new um right. and I'll, and it seemed too good to be true but i was like okay let's interview let's see what happens and um and it's been amazing because i can um you know provide services from my home um well actually like i go to my mom's because it's an actual therapy session you're doing it face to face um almost like video conferencing right, um right. so my my mom will watch my daughter downstairs i'll go upstairs i'll do my therapy sessions between clients i get to see my daughter Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very flexible. I can set what days I want to work, what days, um, are like, you know, no, a no go for me. Um, and so the, the telepractice, uh, has been such a huge blessing, um, for me and for a lot of other mothers. Cause I know now more and more mothers are, you know, taking that route because right. they, you know, they get to practice and then they still get to give, you know, priority to their children.
1: Okay. So brother, do I have 30 more seconds or Perfect. Okay, thank you. Uh, I really wanted to get this next question out. That's why. Um, so I guess in terms of practical next steps, so you've got an cr- awesome story. You've done so much and mashallah, it's a true inspiration. So if somebody wanted to like find out if speech pathology is right for them, what sort of tangible steps do you suggest they take? Should they take a course? Should they do an internship? Should they like in high school, what can they really do?
3: Um. So in- High school, if they're at the high school age, there's, um, there's some clinics out there that allow, um, people to observe. Um, they have to, you know, fill out paperwork and get consents and stuff, mm-hmm. but you can, you can actually go and observe a therapy session and see if that's right for you. And I think that would be one of the first steps to see if, um, you know, they wanted to take that route. Um, by the time they get to that you know, university college, um age or that level um yeah. I would suggest that you know use that elective credit or the elective credits that they have and you know right. take a class and see if that's something that they you know feel like it's something for them
1: okay that's perfect yeah. and you don't necessarily have to start in neuroscience it can be any degree but just take that course and
3: right and yeah. then
1: make your way to that postgraduate degree yeah and, um, okay mm-hmm. so again thank you so much for joining mm-hmm. it was really thank interesting um, <laughs> thanks and we'll, inshallah, see you guys next week. So thank you for listening. And it's back to Brother Dawood.
0: You've been listening to the You Mentor program. The purpose of this program is to uh, educate our youth, to utilize the skills and careers of the movers and shakers in our community to plot the future careers. Uh, for our young people tune in next time right here on wasr.life when we interview and two more exciting guests and they're hoping that their lives will inspire the youth of today for the future uh, for the careers of tomorrow